Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 9th, 2023, New Year, old themes, particularly in America. It's been an odd weekend, I think. Uh, lots of celebration for, it seems, the survival of a professional footballer who had a very unfortunate accident. Um, apparently in his hometown, this is Damar Hamlin. Anguish has turned to happy tears. But there are, of course, lots of unhappy tears at the weekend, too, less well represented, at least in the newspapers and media, according to a new book by... Paul Auster and Spencer Ostrander. Uh, Spencer, perhaps you might say something about uh, the project. Why, why you engaged in this in this partnership with Paul? You know, I um, it was 2019, and I I couldn't sleep one night because there was a mass shooting, and I just I thought, what can I do as a photographer to to shed light on this stuff? And so I, I spent uh, about a year doing research and uh, compiling all the different mass shootings that happened from 2000 to 2022 uh, to, to 2020. And um, I just started going to the places and taking these these photos. And um, yeah, and some of the photos are featured uh, in the book. We can deal with um, we can deal with some of them uh, later in our conversation. Uh, Paul, what about your part in this project how did you get involved well spencer um showed me the photographs which were of course only about mass shootings and i was very impressed by these photographs particularly because they were not violent photographs at all there are no guns in them there are no people in them um they're just buildings and places and often just empty spaces um, but these are the these are the sites where horrific massacres took place, and um, and I thought, well, yes, mass shootings are given a lot of prominence in the press. We all know about them, but finally, mass shootings are only a small fragment of gun injuries and deaths in the country in any given year. And I decided that rather than write a text that would accompany Spencer's photographs, I would write an essay uh, of a certain length that would tell the story of America's obsession with guns, uh, our, our violent um, interaction with guns ever since the beginning of the colonial period, um, which lasted, we mustn't, Forget. I mean, this is very important to know. 180 years of American life took place before the, the revolution, before there was such a thing as the United States of America. So you can hear the phone ringing. We'll just let it. We'll let it ring on. Um, so, so the scope of my piece was enlarged, and then, and then Spencer and I figured out a way to combine our, our joint efforts, um, which was finally a chunk of prose, you know, a chapter of my uh, text, followed by 
the silent photographs that Spencer had taken, followed by text, followed by more photographs, a kind of alternation, a dialogue. Uh, and, the, and the thing about, um, the thing about Spencer's photographs that I find so compelling is that you have to use your imagination in order to see them. Unless you can project your imagination into the scenes that you're witnessing on the page, they will tell you nothing. You have to be in it. And by taking an active part in it, uh, you are um, participating in the whole experience. And I think uh, that's, that's why we did it the way we did it. And um, I think, I think it's, a, it's a good solution. Uh, let's come back to you, Spencer. When you, uh, sorry, when you go to your uh, website, um, lots of pictures of uh, people very much alive. You mentioned that one night you couldn't sleep. Uh, have you ever been personally affected by by any of these tragedies? Uh, I've had a lot of a lot of death in my life, um, and when I was twenty one, I had seven friends of mine die in a year. At, at which point I ended up picking up a camera and through really learned photography going through the grief of my friends. Uh, so I knew, I knew what death means. I know how hard it is. And you hear about these mass shootings and you hear about the, the perpetrator and you hear about the victims, but you don't hear about the families and the friends of the victims that have to live on through these things. And I wanted to do something that would shed light on that. You know, they, it gets all this media attention for about two weeks, and then and a lot of these stories are just forgotten. But but the family and friends have to live on, and it's painful. Paul, uh, the beginning of the book is quite personal, and what you write about your own family and the the gun death that that you learned about. Perhaps you might say something about that and why you began the text of the book with this story. Well, I, I began the way I did because I wanted to establish my credentials as someone who is, in fact, qualified to write about this subject. Because if people think about me um, at all, they think about me as a, a person who writes novels, uh, not as a social commentator, um, not as, as an historian. Um, but um, by telling the story of my grandfather's murder by my grandmother in 1919 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the horrible effect it had on my entire, the, the entire family that my father was a part of. He was the baby. He was only six years old when his father was murdered. And it, it, it wrecked him and it wrecked, it wrecked all of them. And I know firsthand the destructive forces that violence can create in a family. So that, first of all. Second of all, when I was a boy, I took great pleasure in shooting. Um, you know, I'm not just simply somebody who's horrified and against guns. No, I understand the, the pleasure of shooting. And uh, when I was uh, quite young, I became very good at it and was winning badges and uh, prizes for, for my marksmanship. So um, 
I, I just, I, those two factors needed to be introduced in the, to the book right away. And then, and then of course, I begin, I begin going more deeply into, you know, the history of, of guns in colonial America and then, and then into um, um, America as it exists today as a, as a country with a constitution. Um, so, so there we are. I, I wanted to also, and this is, I think, crucial, is to present this not as a moral issue, but as a, as a health issue. I mean, we have a health crisis going on in the country now. If you have um, so many tens of thousands of people being killed every year and, and, and wounded every year, um, you've got a problem. And we have to we have to figure out ways to to solve that problem. And and in order to do that, we have to be able to talk to one another, and not just simply scream, which is what's happened in American political discourse more and more in the last decades. So, the book is dense with these with these kinds of comments and observations. As a photographer, Spencer, how, how do you feel working with a guy like Paul? I mean, he's famous, one of America's best-known uh, writers. Was it somewhat intimidating? No. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very close with Paul. I've been close with Paul for a long time now. I'm married to his daughter. Um, this is something that, in doing this project, it was something that I played around with the concept about how to make this work. And he was very much part of that. Um, a year into it, he asked me if he could write the text for the for the book, and I agreed. And and I brought him over about seven thousand pages of research I had done. Um, but it was we were very close, and we ended up doing another book during this time called "Long Live King Kobe," which came out in May. Yeah, t tell me a little bit about that book uh, that went with Bloodbath Nation, the uh, Long Live King Kobe. Yeah, well, when I was, Long Live King Kobe started um, when I attended a funeral of Tyler Kobe Nichols in January 2021. Tyler was a 21-year-old who was stabbed a block away from his house in Brooklyn. And I just so happened to go to the funeral and meet the mom and... I told her about my project and she allowed me to stay at the funeral. I documented the funeral. I went home and I looked up and realized that he was actually stabbed, not shot. So it wouldn't fit into the work. About a week later, she called me and said, would you like to come over and talk to talk about Tyler? And I said, sure. And that's what that's started this project where one person's death through 17 of their family or friends talking about, about Tyler and everybody's own perspective on it. This book, Long Live King Cubby, is really Spencer's book. Uh, I participated with the, with the words. Uh, I, I provided the words because they were, they were necessary to inform the reader about who these people were and what the circumstances of these different pictures was. But uh, at the same time, I tried to keep my my comments as neutral as possible. Um, so it, it um, I, 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 
I provided a service, but I wasn't an active collaborator in the project the way we were with the other book. Um, uh, Paul, the book is anything, Blood Bath Nation, that is, is anything but neutral. It's the text, at least, and the photos, of course, also in their own way, are, are polemics. There are arguments about the tragedy of what you call the bloodbath nation. You, you mentioned, and, and it's a wonderful read, it's short and brisk, wakes anyone up, would wake any American up. You begin, as you say, um, several hundred years ago. Why do we need to go so far back when it comes to guns? Well, because we won't understand where we, how we got to where we are now if we don't understand where we came from to begin with. Um, I mean to say, America is is a, is a, is an invented country, probably the first invented country in human history, um, and um, it was a it was a, a a country that was stolen from the people who lived in it. Uh, namely the indigenous people, the so-called Indians, um, which uh, the white invaders, and we have to look at the British here as the invaders, um, felt they had the right to steal from, from the people who lived here. Um, it led to brutal conflicts. And, and, and one can say that the, the beginning of uh, American history, beginning of American life, was um, founded on a state of armed conflict. And um, every town in New England um, re was required to form a militia of all able-bodied men over the age of 16. Every, every, everybody over 16 was required by law to buy at his own expense a musket and take care of that musket. Um, and so, in other words, uh, gun rights, were, it, was, it was completely the reverse of what it is today. It wasn't, you know, the right to own a gun. You had a, you had a um, civic responsibility to own a gun in early America. And um, it's, 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 it's very creepy when, when, you, when, you, when you think about it. Um, and then, of course, very quickly, the whole question of slavery became factored into this as well, starting in 1619. So, so you have, um, on the one hand, suppression of the indigenous people. On the other, uh, absolute control uh, by violent means of the uh, enslaved uh, black African population who had been abducted from Africa and, and brought brought here to work as no-cost labor. No-cost labor. Imagine starting a country, a capitalist country, no less, in which the workforce wasn't paid any money. Um, you know, there, there, there's such daunting contradictions about American life that I think it's really important that we pause and study these things and think about them because we take it for granted that all this happened and was the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. It was um, it was genocide. Uh, Paul, we, we had um, 
I'm sure you're familiar with her work, Carol Anderson, African-American historian based in Emory University. Uh, she's been on the show several times. She has her new book out, The Second Guns, Racing Guns in a Fatally Unequal American, which she traces the American fetish with the Second Amendment to race and racism. Your book isn't, of course, about the second. It's a much broader, more ambitious book than Carol's. But my sense is that you would probably be in her camp when it comes to collapsing the history of race and guns in the United States. Yes, I, I would be. I would be. Um, um, just uh, so, many, so much of what is unfair and unjust in, in the United States comes down to a question of race. Once you start looking at it, closely and digging, digging deeply. Um, it's just our, the sad, the sad truth of, of who we are. Um, so it's all part of the book that I've written. Uh, Spencer, perhaps you might say something about some of the photos in the book. Uh, we've got them on the screen for people who are lucky to be watching. Um, some from Burlington, uh, nickel mines, Colorado, Las Vegas, uh, Sutherland Springs. Which one would you like to talk about and perhaps talk through a little bit as a photographer? You know, um, the Las Vegas um, photograph, I, I went there three three years to the day after um, the massacre. And I approached it. And, you know, it's, it's a huge Las Vegas city block that's just empty. And it's been... It's been just forgotten since mm -hmm. since the day of the shooting. And as uh, I approached, perhaps, uh, perhaps you might just explain because not everyone will be familiar with the particular shooting. There have been so many that it was it was the deadliest shooting in the history of of United States. Uh, I think there were seven hundred wounded. Uh, is it fifty eight killed? Yeah, um, more, even more. I think. Um, by a gunman who was up in the up in the hotel shooting down at a uh, country music festival, Route 19. And not a lot is known about the perpetrator, about why he did it, but, you know, it's just shooting at random people at a concert. And so I was outside of there photographing the, the concert venue and a woman came up and fell to the ground and started crying. And I helped her up. I told her what I was doing. She started crying. I started crying. And she said, can I tell you about my husband? And he was maimed. He ended up living, but the effects of his, of the shooting have made their lives almost impossible. And she said to me, do you know what's gonna happen to this space? And I said, no. She goes, they're gonna build a Las Vegas Raiders parking lot there. And you know what people do at park at NFL parking lots? I said no. And she said they're gonna they're gonna um, tailgate, which means that people are just gonna be urinating all over the, the parking lot. And this was something that was just devastating to her. And that was are you suggesting guy. then that it should be, and I, I would be in this camp turned into some sort of monument? I think you have to recognize it in some ways. I think it's important. Paul? Yes, uh, I. You agree, Spencer? 
Paul had described the silence of these deaths and sort of the silence, I guess, of, of your photographs versus the text. What do you think about the silence of photographs versus, if you like, the noise of text when, when we're dealing with such a tragic and controversial subject? You know, I, I intentionally wanted to ask more questions from the viewer than give them answers for this project. I wanted people to think about this. Why am I looking at this? What's the significance of this mall? What's the significance of this? And I thought, you know, I didn't want to re-traumatize victims. I didn't want a hierarchy of, of victimhood from which sites more bodies were, were killed or people were killed. And so I thought there was an appropriate way to not show any, any guns and no people. And we decided consciously not to mention any names. Yeah. Whether of victims or of um, the, the criminals. We had Frank Smythe on the show. Uh, he's the author of uh, the NRA, the Unauthorized History, an expert on the NRA. Uh, he believes that 2023 is only going to get worse 2022 was bad enough. In the book, you touch, Paul, on the impact of COVID, why more and more people are buying guns. Do you agree yeah. with, with Smythe? Do you think that this problem is only getting worse in America? Well, it seems to be getting only worse, and now it seems to have gotten a slight bit better. It's hard to know about statistics. Uh, I think you have to wait. We have to wait longer before we can make any conclusions. Um, there are all kinds of forces in the country operating at once. Yes, there's the pro-gun uh, fanatics, but there are also the anti, the pro-gun control um, uh, advocates who are very, very committed to their beliefs. And so it's um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a stalemate. At, 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 in, in many ways. Um, I think what, one of the things that is so um, uh, hurtful to, to, to the whole argument is that um, there's, there's so much fear in, in, the, in the country is that every time there's a mass shooting, um, the, the pro-gun people uh, go into a panic that the anti-gun people are going to ban guns. So they immediately go out and buy all the guns they can, and, um, and therefore increase the, the the number of people who own guns. Um, uh, you know, there's no perspective on any of this. Um, it's just a kind of um, blind hysteria about about it. Um, so I I don't know. We have to find a way to start talking to each other, and 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 keep our sanity. Um, whether this is possible, I find very doubtful, but, but at least it's something to aim for. Uh, otherwise, where are we going? What happens? What, what kind of country do we want to live in? Um, this is, uh, it's, we're in an intolerable situation. Spencer, you're obviously of a different generation to Paul. Is there a generational quality to this debate, particularly after Parkland. A lot of young people have got involved in this. I mean, I'm not sure if I would describe you as a young person. You're younger than Paul and myself. Um, do you, do we, should we put some faith in the, in, in some sort of 
generational shift. The reason I ask is uh, we had uh, Sasha Eisenberg on the show last year, written a book about same-sex marriage, book called The Engagement, very influential, America's quarter-century struggle over same-sex marriage. And when I talked to uh, Eisenberg, we discussed the the acceptance of state of same-sex marriage in that very dramatic way in, in, in the context of guns. Uh, uh, it was very, very dark, and then suddenly it became light. So wh what's your sense on, on the generational front? Well, I grew up, you know, I was in high school when Columbine happened, and that was, that was a, a major shift, I remember. Um, before that, I don't remember a lot of school shootings. Um, and now it's, it's changed. You have, you know, kids are, kids are doing active shooter drills in kindergarten and preschool. Um, for my generation, this is a lot more, it's, it's the generation of, you know, the internet and 24 hour news. And you're constantly being, being told about these incidents. What's, what was amazing to me was doing the research and, and seeing how many of these shootings I had never heard of, you know, you in all corners of, of the country. And you just, you just don't hear about them. Um, people don't really want to talk about them, especially if the perpetrator's killed. They just kind of want to close the book on it and say that happened and not, not investigate it anymore. But, but there's, there's family members and there's friends of those people who will never be the same and they don't get any recognition. Paul, what do you think on the, the generational front? Has something changed over the last few years when it comes to younger people and their anger at the inaction on gun legislation? I think, um, <clears throat> I think uh, happily, um, be because young people tend to be more idealistic than older people, um, uh, there has been a, a surge of... Uh, a new commitment towards doing something about gun violence. But I think at the same time, uh, it, it, it embraces both sides, the old and the young. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old and my, my feelings about all this have never changed since I was young. So um, uh, people don't change that much, <laughs> I, I don't think. Um, so... So no, I think um, there's uh, there's uh, uh, a solidarity among young and old um, to to do something important about stemming the extent of the violence. You quote your mother, Paul, in the book when you used to go on your ranch. She would say, "Dream on, Paul. Dream on." <laughs> How realistic is any of this? I mean. Uh, I'm in your camp. I'm horrified as an outsider by all this. But on the other hand, there are 30, 40, maybe 50% of Americans who will strongly disagree. Uh, I think I think maybe 30 is is more the number. I, I keep thinking to myself, and this is why it's so complicated. And I tell myself this every day. There are more of us than there are of them. There are more people who want gun control than people who don't. There are more people who want abortion than don't. Um, it's just that the, 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 the reactionary forces in the country are very loud. They make a lot of noise. 
but they don't really have the, the uh, majority. Now, one of our big problems in the United States, and I don't want to start lecturing you on the history of our government, but the way the government of the United States was set up right in the beginning at, of the, of the, the uh, writing of the Constitution is that we set up a minority rule government. I mean, there's nothing less democratic than the Senate. When you have um, states, every state with two senators, that means two senators from Utah, which has 500 something thousand people, and two senators from California, which has 40 million people. Now that is not democracy. Um, the, the electoral college is not democracy. And in fact, when you think about it, the two worst presidents, at least in my opinion, in, 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 in recent years, and, and both of them from this century, George W. Bush and Donald Trump were both elected with a minority of the electorate, but they won in the electoral college. Now that is not democratic. And then when you add in um, uh, gerrymandering as as a as a legalized form of um, uh, disrupting the fairness of elections, um, and then you add in finally the filibuster which again is a most anti-democratic uh, device that uh, was always used by Southern racists to block civil rights legislation. You, you have those four forces working. It's very hard to get things done. We have to have huge super majorities in order to get legislation done. I think we have to spend time also addressing our government and, and making fixes to, 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 to the Constitution. Again, whether anyone will go along with this is another question. But I'm saying that I don't think we'll arrive at, at a just solution if we don't do it. You touch on prohibition in the 20s uh, in the book, In Bloodbath Nation. What could we learn from that about a constitutional mistake that then in the and under FDR was undone? Well, I think, um, uh, no, FDR wasn't undone. FDR got rid of it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so, so FDR undid, undid the mistake. Yeah, he undid the mistake. But um, um, it, it's, what, what the lesson, it seems to me, is absolute bans on activities that a lot of people want to practice in a society um, is not a good idea. Um, people want to drink, and um, if we prevent them from drinking, they're going to drink anyway and break the law. And the same thing would be true if we banned guns. People would, would find guns anyway, and uh, there would be no control over them whatsoever. So it's not a good idea. Um, so uh, we have to think of other ways of dealing with this. Spencer, you're on the same page as Paul on, on these profound structural changes to American political life that will, that will enable. I mean, are you in favor, Paul, of just outlawing guns? What would be, if you could just snap your finger, what would happen? Yeah. 
I would like a ban on guns. I'm, you know, hunters still want to have want to go hunting. That's fine, but we don't need um, we don't need high powered rifles and and handguns everywhere. You know, you look at you look at Texas, which was just you know, you don't even need a, a license anymore there to carry a weapon. Sure. No. But, but blanket bans um, are not going to work. Um, um, as I as I as I said in my book, if uh, I were made head of the United States for one day, no, for one hour, and stood up on a mountain and said, my one act as the ruler of the country would be to ban guns, buy them all up at five times their commercial value, give them all people all this money, turn them into farm implements. I said, by the time I got down from the mountain, uh, so many people would have shot at me, I'd look like a piece of Swiss cheese. Um, it's not going to work, you know, making these declarations. It won't work. Well, let's end on a realistic note. Uh, Joe Biden has promised to end gun violence epidemic. He did it in his... Uh, campaign stuff. He boasts of 25 executive actions to reduce gun violence. Um, the Hill believes that a, an assault weapons ban could be a political winner in 2023. What can and should Joe Biden do in 23? For better or worse, Paul, you're not going to be made uh, CEO of America even for five minutes. So we've we got to deal with Joe Biden, who is the CEO. I, I, I'm, I, I agree with you on that. Um, uh, listen, if if he can if he can get a coalition together to ban um, high uh, 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 high high uh, weapons of that sort, um, then yeah, we'll do it. But I don't know if it's 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 not going to be very easy. But it, we did it once. Maybe maybe it could be done again. We'll see. We'll see. But it's something, it's something to certainly try for. And Spencer, let's end with you. We began with you. What would you like to happen? What can Joe Biden do? I think... I think, I think that he, they can, you know, try to get the votes and, and make some actual change, but I don't see that happening. I don't see him taking it on as... He can say he's doing it, but I don't think that he can really afford to, to take that stance right now. I don't think he can get a coalition. 